Well, if you have your Bible with you, we are going to be in the book of First Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. Um, while you're turning there, let me just, I know Dave prayed, but I'm actually like super nervous this morning. Um, you know, as he, as he indicated, we're leaving for Virginia, and uh, before we leave, this is actually the last time I'm going to get to share the word with you from, from this place uh, on a Sunday morning before we leave. So there's been a lot of emotions for me, thinking about this passage, praying about this morning, and so I just want to pray for my own heart, um, as well as yours this morning, before we, we dig into First Thessalonians together. So let's, let's go before the Lord yet again in prayer. Father, there, there's nothing I can say that brings any value to your people apart from you. And so, God, I ask that as I, I communicate your word this morning, that you would speak through me, but, Lord, that I would submit and surrender myself to your spirit. God, if there's anything that I've prepared to say this morning that's not of you, help me forget it. And if there's anything that I haven't prepared that you would like me to say, help me to be sensitive to your word and spirit and speak boldly. God, we do not want your word to return void, and we are assured that it won't. You promise that your word is effective. And so I pray that your spirit, through your word, would do its effectual work, stirring up the hearts of believers to faith in Christ and repentance today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Waiting is excruciating, isn't it? Waiting is excruciatingly painful. And I think we've all felt the weight of our own anxious desire for control in moments where we have to wait. Amen? All things are out of our hands, and the perpetual thoughts invading our mind seemingly over and over and over are just showing us where our trust actually is in the waiting. Paul is all too familiar with such waiting. After being forced out of this city called Thessalonica, he writes to a very, very young church. And he, he's writing from what many scholars believe is the city of Corinth. So we see Paul leave Thessalonica and he's, he, he goes to another city, and then um, while he's in a city called Athens, which many of you have probably heard, it's a pretty popular city in the ancient world, appears in a lot of movies. While he's in this really pagan city, he sends his, his favorite co-laborer in the gospel back to Thessalonica. He's, he's left by himself in hostile territory. And after doing some ministry in Athens, he leaves and he goes to the city of Corinth, waiting to hear Timothy's report of how the church is doing. And Thessalonica. It's a young church, not young necessarily in age, but in maturity. A church that he knows would face incredible opposition. He was there for about three weeks, and while Paul was in Thessalonica, a, a riot began in the city. You see these, these Jews um, incited some, some non-Jewish citizens of the city, and they started a mob against the church. They actually dragged a guy named Jason out of the temple and beat him. And they went before the Roman authorities in Thessalonica, and they, their indictment against the church was this, that they are turning the world upside down. A prophetic truth that you and I must deal with as we confess Jesus as Lord. Christ has come, and the world as you and I know it has been turned upside down. The value systems of this world have been flipped on their heads in Jesus. And we were reminded of this truth as Jesus himself says it in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Such a pitiable condition as you and I would see it, and yet a position of honor and blessedness in the kingdom, to be poor in spirit. So will this young church persevere through the affliction, or will they, will they fold? Will the Thessalonian church cave to the desires of the society around them, pressing them to compromise their faith in Jesus, or will they stand out? Will they make it through they're suffering. Will God preserve them through the slander and violence and lack of safety? Will the church stand resolved for the sake of the gospel or will they cower in fear 
These are questions Paul himself is, is wrestling with as he longs to hear the report of what God is doing in this church. He's, he's left them. He was only there for four weeks. People were converted. They came to faith in Jesus, and then they were left. Could you imagine a church of brand new believers in hostile territory, surrounded by persecution, without the guide and leadership of a shepherd who's been following Christ much longer than them? It sounds like a bleak picture to me, and this has Paul very anxious. So anxious, in fact, that as he's writing the book of 2 Corinthians, he goes through this incredible list of sufferings that he's experienced. He talks about being beaten and shipwrecked and jailed and all these things, but the last thing on Paul's list of things that he suffered for for the sake of the gospel was his anxiety for the churches. You see, for Paul, the thing that brought him the greatest grief was his concern for his brothers and his sisters. Not his own life, but the lives of those he, he walked with and cared for. So Paul tends, sends Timothy to find out, to go into the city. He longs to know. He couldn't bear it any longer, as verse 1 says. And so he sent his best companion to find out what is going on in the young church. Will they stand firm and flat-footed on the gospel, or will they fall away? Let's find out. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 10 together this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul's heart for a suffering church presses us toward reliance on God's people. Let me say that again. Paul's heart for a suffering church presses us toward reliance on God's people. We're going to examine how Paul's heart for a suffering church presses us toward one another in the family of faith in four ways this morning. We're going to see the concern of Paul the shepherd for his people. We're going to see the teaching of the shepherd as he leans in and helps them see the truth of the gospel and how it applies to their situation. We're going to see the faithfulness of sheep depending on the Lord and following their shepherd. And we're going to see the need for community in a life in Christ. Could you imagine being loved and cherished as Paul cherishes this church? Just let me read a couple things in this passage and just think of the intensity of Paul's care and affection for these people. He says twice, when we could bear it no longer, he says, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. He tells them that, that he sent to learn about their faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted them and that his labor would be in vain. He says that Timothy has brought good news of their faith and love and that in all Paul's own distress and affliction, he is comforted. He says, with great joy, how can he repay God for the joy that this church has brought him and how God has used this church to give him great joy? Paul is overflowing with intense emotional affection for these people. What would it be like to be loved and cherished as Paul cherishes this church? What I want to contend this morning, what I want to kind of argue this morning 
is that we should not have to imagine what it is like to be loved like this, to be so deeply loved and cared for by those leading Christ's church. Because we have shepherds. We have elders that God has called, pastors that God has called to care for us in the same way that Paul is caring for the Thessalonian church in this context. We have pastors who love us and on a regular basis lay themselves down on our behalf, many of which is not seen by us. The things that happen behind closed doors in houses throughout the week. As people deal with difficulty, questions about their faith, sufferings, challenges, the leaders of our church step up and lean in and show just how much they love and care for and cherish the body. But maybe, maybe you're in here and you haven't experienced that. Maybe you haven't experienced the love and affection of those who are maybe discipling you in Christ. Maybe you don't have anyone discipling you in Christ, right? It would be unrealistic for us to expect that the pastors of our church, there are six of them, five elders in Kent, it would be unrealistic for us to expect that those six men would be able to pour out their lives to the hundreds of us in this room, watching online, watching out in the backyard this morning. And yet, those pastors are called, as Ephesians 4 says, to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so our leaders equip us to engage and minister to one another, to disciple and care for one another. Maybe you haven't experienced that kind of love and affection and care to be invested and poured into by somebody who's gone before you in the faith. And maybe if you do have to imagine what that would like, perhaps we should begin to be, think of ways that we are imagining what it would look like to be loved like that and start loving others in the same way we're imagining being loved. Maybe we should think about the ways that we desire for the people in the local church to invest in us and use those as means to invest in those in the local church. Maybe we should not wait around for somebody to ask us if we would like to be discipled. And instead, like I did when I was 18 years old and show up in this church, annoy the mess out of some adults until they cared enough about me to say yes, and they did. And I tell you what, I was really, really, really annoying, and still am, so pray for me. Paul's heart for the church in this passage is compelling, isn't it? He loves them. It motivates me to lean into the body of Christ. It motivates me to seek Christ among his bride and body, not apart from it. So I pray that this morning, look, 2020 has been, oh my goodness, y'all, 2020 has been terrible. And I'm so tired of hearing how terrible 2020 is, I don't even want to talk about it. But what I I do want to say and what I think the, 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 the single greatest difficulty that 2020 has presented to the church is it has given us an excuse to divide and isolate. It has given us an excuse to justify dividing and isolating. It's been the perfect storm to prod and poke at the camaraderie, unity, and mutual dependence among the body of Christ here. I'm not talking about out there. I'm not talking about the church down the road. I'm not going to pastor where I don't belong. I belong here. This is my church for three more weeks. This is where I'm concerned. And so I'm not concerned about the, the church on Facebook unless those members are here. I'm not concerned about the church on Twitter unless those members are here. I'm not concerned about what the the church in Peoria is doing. I'm not even concerned about what the church I'm going toward in Virginia is doing right now. I'm here. You are my people. I care about you. And 2020 has presented an opportunity for the enemy to prod and poke at the camaraderie, the unity, and the mutual dependence among the body of Christ here. So let's fix our eyes on the text and see Paul the pastor shepherd these sheep in Thessalonica. That we too would be people who long to be shepherded. How many people in here long to be pastored? It sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Do you long to be pastored, to be led toward Christ? Do you long to be shepherded? And so I pray that we, as we look at this, that we would long to be shepherded mutually as the people of God as we wait for the good shepherd, Christ Jesus, to return and renew all that is wrong and jacked up with the world that we experience day in and day out. The first thing that we're going to see is that shepherds are deeply concerned for their sheep. I'm getting this from verses 1 and 2. 
Right? So Paul longs to see this church again face to face. Right? He, he wants to see them. He, he wants to see them so much that he's willing to send his best friend, his co-laborer in the gospel, to check on them, to be abandoned by them so that he would be able to check on the church there. At the end of chapter 2, he tells us that this church, in the Thessalonians, are his glory and his joy at Christ's coming. Now, why is that important? Because he knows and he recognizes that even though he longs to be near this people, the enemy, Satan himself, has prevented him from getting there. Paul, is, is, he's not ashamed to attribute evil to the works of the enemy. You see, I, I think so often in our in our, in our, in our naturalistic, rational way of processing the world, we totally forget about the supernatural powers and principalities that play a backdrop behind all of the evil that you and I experience in this life. Now, here's what I'm not saying. You see, we can overemphasize spiritual powers in our own sin, can't we? Right? Like, we can blame our own sinful desires on, ah, well, well, Satan made me do that. Well, then we just sound like Eve in, in Genesis 3, right? The enemy does not poke and prod and tempt you He doesn't give you new temptations. He only exposes what's already in your heart, what your your heart's already attached to, the the ways that you're prone to idolatry and love apart from God. The enemy only incites and tempts that which is already there. But Paul is very, very clear and very, very often exposes how the enemy seeks to prevent the progression of the gospel. That's what he's concerned about here. That the enemy is preventing Paul from getting back to Thessalonica and therefore preventing the gospel from going forward and making progress in this world. Something that Jesus himself says, what? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And so Paul can't go, but Timothy can. So he sends Timothy in his stead. How do we know in verses one through two that we have a concerned shepherd? Well, there's three things that we can see. We can see a shepherd who's willing to endure hardship for the relief of his people, We can see a shepherd who is sending out his best in his place, and we can see a shepherd who is concerned about what matters most, not their circumstances, but their faithfulness to Jesus, their faithfulness to Jesus. Paul does not send Timothy to fix their circumstances. He sends Timothy, verse 2, to establish and exhort his people in the faith. Going through personal hardship brings out those who care for you, doesn't it? Right? Like when we're experiencing hardship, we really see the people in our life who care for us most. Amen? When I was in jail in 2012, uh, it was probably the first time in my life where I actually felt alone and abandoned. Like nobody wanted to talk to me anymore, and they had really, really, really good reason to not talk to me. Right? And nobody, none of, none of the friends that I partied with, hung out with, Nobody came to see me. I was there for like, not like 10 minutes. I was there for a couple months. Nobody came to see me. Until one day, two of my friends, two, hung out with quite a bit of people. Two people had concern enough to come see me and visit me in jail. If two drug buddies cared enough to visit me in my difficulty, how much more should the family of God care for and encourage one another. We share Jesus. We've all shared in the redemption of Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our iniquity. The powers of darkness no longer prevail over us. We have the power to say no to sin and death and have so much assurance in Christ because of his resurrection that we know that death itself will not have a grip on us. We will not die, but will experience eternal life. Not just life that never ends in, in, in time sense, but a quality of life in this life that is a glimpse and a peace and a bite of the heaven that we will receive when Christ returns. Amen? We share that with one another. Like just, just think about that for a minute. We share that. The blood of Christ runs thicker than the blood of your biological family. Is that kind of community and camaraderie your experience in the church? And if it isn't, what's the disconnect? And when you start thinking about the disconnect, be very, very careful because many of us, myself included, are prone to point fingers at others. 
and blame them for our lack of engagement in the church. But what I want you to see here is that God is doing something peculiar in his people, gathered together in the church, so much so that it is worth spending our lives in. This is the means that God seeks to bring about the kingdom of God on, on earth. I want you to be a part of that. Paul wants us to be a part of that. Knowing that there are shepherds and members that care, this should put us in a position of eagerness to seek out discipleship in the family of God. And let me break down what I mean by that just a minute. Knowing that there are shepherds and leaders in the church who care much more than my drug buddies did who came to see me in jail. Much more than any group of people that I've experienced in my own personal life, this church has been the conduit of God's care and concern and compassion and mercy and grace to me personally through many people who have invested in me and discipled me for the last eight years. And it has been a joy to be a part of that in this church. Such a joy. I could close my Bible and spend the next hour and a half talking to you about how much of a joy that has been and how much of a joy those eight years have been walking with people who have encouraged me, helped me in the faith, called me on my sin, called me out of darkness, challenged me specifically in my sin, and yet held my hand through my repentance, equipped me for ministry, called me to ministry, pressed me to do things I didn't want to do, but if I did that, the Sun Chasers people would be really, really upset because I would keep them longer than my typical 15, 20 minutes over. So I don't want to do that. Connect with a pastor family. Connect with an elder. Connect with your community group leader. Connect with a community group. Connect, connect, connect. Dig in. Lean into the body of Christ. Lean into what God is doing here. It is special. It is special what God is doing here. This is God's church. This is his bride. Think about it with me this way for a moment. This will sound really, really weird and strange, but I believe that the Bible calls us to be dependent on the local church. Dependent on the local church. We need the local church. We need one another. How do I know that? How can I prove that? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a truth running through Scripture, that, and, it's, and it's called union with Christ, right? When you hear Paul describe the life in Christ, how does he describe it? He describes it by saying, in Christ. You, you don't really hear Paul using words like believer or Christian or, 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 or born-again Christian or kind of all of these other terms that we use to label people who are following Jesus today, right? You don't hear that a ton in the Bible. What you hear is Paul saying, in Christ. Christ. And as he unpacks this image of what it means to be in Christ, he often uses pictures, right? And so in, in, John, in John 15, Jesus uses a picture to talk about this, referring to himself as the vine and the church, us, God's people, as the branches. We abide, we connect, we remain in him, and as we remain in him, we bear fruit for the kingdom. Now listen to this. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do, amen, nothing. Do you believe that? That apart from Jesus, you can do absolutely nothing. That apart from Jesus, anything I have to say up here is worthless. Worthless apart from Christ. Paul uses this analogy of, of Christ being the bridegroom and, and, and the church being the bride, right? And in Ephesians 5, he says that the mystery of marriage actually points to the union between Christ and the church. And, and again, Paul refers to us in the book of Corinthians as what? The body of Christ. Amen. I, 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 this is my last time I get to pick on you. I'll make you talk a little bit this morning. The body of? Amen. And Christ is the head. So let me ask you this. If we are the body of Christ, literally the hands and feet of Jesus on earth, how do we depend on Jesus? What does it look like to depend on Jesus? It looks like depending on his body. Amen? Because we're united with him. You, you, are, are you tracking with me? You, you, you picking up what I'm throwing down? We're united to Jesus in Christ. And so we depend on his body. Literally depend. We need each other. Do you come in here on Sunday morning saying, I need this people. I need this people. I need to be here. God needs to do something in me to get me engaged and involved with this people. Or is the enemy poking and prodding at the camaraderie 
the unity of the body of Christ here in your heart. Do not give the enemy a foothold. Number two, verse three through five, shepherds speak the truth in love. We see Paul give some really, really hard words in verses three through five, amen? Listen to what he says. He says this, that no one be moved by these afflictions. So he's saying, I'm encouraging, I'm exhorting you in the faith. Why? So no one's moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know we are destined for this. Destined for what? Affliction. don't take my word for it it's in the text it's there destined for affliction how's he going to prove that verse 4 for when we were with you this is Acts 17 he's talking about when we were with you we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction so Paul as he's in Thessalonica is telling the church we're going to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, right? They experienced it in Acts 17 as Paul and Silas ran out of the city. There's a riot stirred up in the city. They're accusing him of usurping Caesar's authority as king by proclaiming Christ as king. And then he says this, and just as you know, you know you've experienced this. We experienced it with you. You're experiencing it now. We kept telling you beforehand that we were going to suffer. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Now listen to this. What if a pastor came over to your house? Think about this. Just put yourself in, in this scenario. Um, Dave. Dave comes over to your house. Pastor Dave knocks on the door. You haven't, you haven't been around in a while, right? You haven't been around in a while. You, you're, just, you're not involved in church. You've been absent. You've been kind of just dismissive. Maybe there's a text or two that's been thrown your way, an email. You've just kind of responded to it passively or with vague generalities of how life is. Life is good. Kids are good. You know, things like this. Really avoiding the weightier matters of, of what God is actually up to in your life and how you're experiencing suffering and difficulty. Maybe wandering from the faith, right? Put yourself in that situation. Pastor Dave comes, knocks on your door and says this. I could bear it no longer. I wanted to come over to your house to learn about your faith. Now, that sounds really weird. Nobody says that anymore, right? He says, I wanted to come to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and my labor is in vain. Oh my. We're all offended now, amen? Right? Like, that sounds invasive. Like, get out of my business, dude. Paul speaks the truth in love to these people so much so that he's willing to say, I'm sending Timothy because I'm scared that Satan has drawn you so much away from the faith that all the time I spent in Thessalonica was actually worthless. Holy cow. That's a hard word, amen? Like, that's a hard word. But it's a good word. Why? Because it comes from the place of concern. You see, truth in love is so valuable, family. It's, it's, it's valuable. Why? Why is truth in love valuable? Because it presses us toward gospel endurance, right? When, when, when somebody comes over to your house and gets in your business like that, it presses you toward gospel endurance. It helps you see where, where you need faith and repentance in your own life. It helps you see where you're slacking, where you're lazy in your life in Christ. And yet at the same time, it shows how much someone cares, right? When someone's actually willing to give you a good, gentle, hard word. There's this passage in, in Isaiah that, that speaks of the character of the coming Messiah, and it says this, a bruised, wheat, a bruised reed he will not break, and a quenched wick, or a flickering wick he will not quench. So we have this picture of Messiah. We have this, this weak, tiny little candle, a flickering wick. It's about to go out, and the Messiah is gentle. He's not going to quench or put out the wick. He's going he's to stir it up. A bruised reed. He's not going to come in and break you in your weakness. He's going to build you up in your weakness. And God uses the shepherds of his flock and the sheep of his flock to do that in our lives. Why? Because they are the very body of Christ, the body of Christ, united to him in his head, led by his word, engaging in ways, in ways that are really, really invasive in your life, in my life. Why? For the mutual building up of the body of Christ so that we would be strengthened in Christ, strong in Christ. The sign of a 
dying church is a church that is unwilling to speak the truth in love. Are you willing to speak the truth in love? Better question, are you willing for the truth to be spoken to you? Truth in love communicates hard truths clearly. There's no room for ambiguity when it comes to life in Christ and doctrine, right? There's no room for vague generalities. We have to communicate clearly. Paul is bold. He says exactly what his concern is. He's afraid that the progression of the gospel has has shrinked back in the church, and he has every reason to. These are new Christians. I don't know about you, but when I was a new Christian, if I was put in a position around my old friends who used to party, I really, really wanted to party. I really, really, really wanted to shrink back from the hope of the gospel that I knew, heard, and experienced. And yet Paul writes to them, telling them this clearly, and yet not just saying from afar, like, hey, y'all need to do something about this. No, no, no. He sends his brother in Christ, his co-worker Timothy, to go and encourage and exhort him. He's doing something about it. His concern motivates him not just to speak the truth in love, but live the truth in love as he sends his brother in Christ to engage them in life so that they might be built up in godliness and be encouraged in their affliction and difficult circumstances. It's because truth in love communicates these hard truths from concern for your faith, not concern for your circumstances, not concern for your emotional temperament, but concern for your faithfulness and longevity in Christ. You know when a conversation about sin in the church is going wrong when somebody is not concerned for the faith of their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're more concerned about being right. I think we've all been involved in that conversation, right? where somebody might come to you to expose some wrong, and they're actually less concerned about your faith and more concerned about just being right and telling you you were wrong. I've been that guy doing that to somebody. If I've done that to you, please forgive me. I I repent of that wickedness in my own heart. And yet at the same time, let us not be so, so, so naive to miss that there are so many blind areas in our own hearts and we need one another to point out each other's blind spots, to show each other where we are weak and prone to wander. God intentionally, we see God intentionally using suffering in this passage for the betterment of his people. And that's a hard truth, amen? How does God, how does a good God, how does the God of the universe See it as good to involve himself in my suffering. How is it that he can intentionally put me in a position to suffer affliction and yet still be a loving God? How how could he not want me to avoid pain? Because family in a fallen world, it is not loving to make you think that you can avoid pain. For some of you, God's involvement in suffering sounds cold and heartless. You read a passage like this and and you're dismissive. You might say to yourself, how is God good if he does this? How could he not do this if he was good? What kind of loving God would allow his children to suffer quietly, passively, and dismissively? Praise God that he leverages our frailty, fallenness, and affliction to bear evidence of glory in this life. Praise God that we can say with James... I count it all joy when I face trials of various kinds. Why? Because the testing of my faith produces steadfastness. And what does he say? He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Affliction gets us to glory. God uses affliction to get us to glory so that we would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It refines us in the fire of life, so that we would come out pure. Or as Paul says says in Romans 8, which Pastor Dave quoted earlier, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. God literally takes the afflictions of this life and uses them to press the image of Jesus into us. As he unravels and deals with our, our sin, he builds us up into the image of his son. God calls sheep to make themselves known to the shepherd. Let me say that again. God calls sheep 
which is you and me, to make themselves known to a shepherd. One of the greatest joys in marriage is to be known, fully known, by another human being, right? For another human being to see me in my weakness, for Sarah to see me in my failure, and to not abandon me, but to remain with me, and in fact, see my weakness in such a way that it causes her to lean in that much more, seeking to build me up and encourage me in Christ. We all long to know and be known, don't we? We want to be known, we, we, but we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of what other people are going to think about us. We're afraid to let people see us in our weakness. We're afraid to let people see how fragile we actually are. And so what do we do in the church? We hold each other at arm's length, right? And here's what this looks like. Maybe you're in community group and you're confessing sin or, or you're trying to confess sin and you say, I'm just really struggling with something. Man, if somebody pressed you really hard and said, well, what is it exactly that's causing you to struggle? We all, myself, we clam up, don't we? Like we freak out internally. We don't get out of my business, stay away. It's the same thing we would say if Pastor Dame came, came knocking, seeking to find out about our faith. Or if Pastor Ben or Joel or, or Kent or anybody in this church knocked on our door with enough seriousness in the gospel to look at us, us and say, hey, how are you actually doing? The church in Thessalonica standing firm. Timothy brings to Paul the, the good news of their faithfulness. I, I love this. In, in, in verse 6, he says that Timothy has come and brought us the good news, the same word used throughout the Bible for gospel. Gospel. The faithfulness of the Thessalonians is a kind of gospel. Why? Because it shows how the gospel has impacted the hearts and lives of people, new believers, and their persevering in affliction and suffering and difficulty. Pastors and leaders in the church are essential to the work being done in the church. And as Paul gets a report from Timothy, we see the church standing firm. They're, they're walking faithfully in Christ. In fact, they're walking faithfully in the faith, as it were, right? Faithfully in the faith. As Paul says over and over again, faith, 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 faith in this passage. He's not talking about their cognitive like belief that they, they, they know that Jesus exists, right? Just like I know that that chair is sitting right there. Like, yeah, Jesus, Jesus did some stuff. He's a cool dude. He you know, maybe raised somebody from the dead, maybe came back from the dead himself. He's not talking about that. When, when he says faith, think more along the lines of faithfulness, faith that has so filled your life that it's producing a life of righteous fruit in the, in, 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 in the community that you're in, in your own personal life. Faithfulness. These people were full of faith, and it compelled them to action. It compelled them to a life in Christ that reflected their king. They're walking faithfully. One of the biggest roles of a pastor in the church is to know their flock. They know their sheep. They're aware of the hurting sheep, the weary sheep, the biting sheep. They know where the problem sheep are and where the sheep should be headed. Shepherds lead God's flock by knowing their sheep. By knowing their sheep. Are you known by our shepherds? Are you known by them? If they came and asked some invasive questions in your life, if I came over and asked some invasive questions in your life, are you willing to make yourself known to me? Are you willing to make yourself known to the person sitting next to you? If shepherds are to know their sheep, if that is one of the primary responsibilities of our elders is to know us, there's a command and an encouragement for us in there, isn't there? It's that sheep are to make themselves known to shepherds. We entrust the condition of our faith to our shepherds, don't we? We let them see us in our weakness. We confess our sin to them. We let them walk with us and bear with us in our frailty and our failure. We look to them by the standard of Scripture. One of the interesting things in this passage, Paul frames up the good news about the report in two ways. He says that he heard about their faith and love, and then he describes what their faith and love looked like. Look at verse 6 has brought us good news about your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly 
and long to see us as we long to see you. Now, this is really, really fascinating. They're not talking about how you might have fond memories of a family sitting around a fire at, at, at Christmas dinner. That's not what he means when he says they remember us kindly. What he's saying is this. The Thessalonian church was in a community that kicked Paul out of the city. So let me ask you a question. How do you think the people of that city thought of Paul? They didn't think well of him. So you can imagine there are people yapping their gums around the city, talking about how crazy and terrible and, and ignorant and wrong and horrible that Paul is. And meanwhile, you have this teeny, 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 tiny group of non-influential Christians, this small group of young Christians, hearing that the guy who came and proclaimed to them the gospel is a worthless scumbag. What do you do? Do you join in the gossip? Or do you stand up for your shepherd? How many of us have been in a community group or in a, in a circle of Christians and then all of a sudden somebody in leadership at a church, whether this one or another one, is just getting blasted? Family, we, we've got to stand up for our shepherds. I've seen our elders cry over you. I've seen them pray for you. Express concern for you. And if you hear anything from, from the eight years that I've been involved in this church, defend and stand with your shepherds. United as the flock of God. There's part of me that wants to bring all of our elders up here right now and pray for them. I'm not going to do that because if, if not, Dave will flick me in the nose. I don't, I don't want to do that. Pray for your shepherds. They are weary, but they are weary for your sake. Think about that. They are tired for your sake, for my sake. Walk with them, pray for them, honor them. I'm not saying that shepherds are untouchable, godly men. They are godly men that are very touchable, which means they need your accountability. They need you to lean in and ask them hard questions, just like they can ask you hard questions. Shepherds are put in a position where they, as the shepherds of the flock, are called to make themselves known to the flock, just as the flock makes themselves known to the shepherds. And so we look to them by the standard of Scripture. We hold them accountable to the standard of Scripture. But where they are faithful, we stand with them. And when somebody slanders one of our pastors, Lord help whoever does it. I'm just kidding. But we love our enemies, right? Amen? <laughs> but we honor our shepherds. We walk with them. We care for them. Do not allow the mainstream opinion of the church cause you to give an opinion of the faithfulness of your pastor. Don't take another pastor across the country and take that image of pastoral ministry and think it's going to work immediately in our context. Which means this. There are two churches that could be absolutely biblical in the way that they approach coronavirus. Very, very different, and yet be equally as biblical. So family, think again before you lovingly send an article to a pastor about how to do pastoral ministry right now. That doesn't mean you can't encourage them and have conversation. But conversation is far, far more amazing and beneficial for our life in Christ than, hey, pastor, can you check this link out? I just want to know what you think about this as a passive-aggressive shot. And I'm not saying this because I've heard one of our pastors say this to me. I actually have no idea. But I was just in seminary with a group of pastors who have all experienced this from their church members, and it brought me to tears to see members of the flock taking passive-aggressive shots at their shepherds, all while I'm studying this passage. I'm like, man, I don't know if this is happening with our people, but if it is, got to say something. Because I love you, and I love our pastors. The unity of God's people should be far greater of importance in our lives than our own complaints. Amen? I'm going to step off my soapbox now. Please forgive me. I could sit here and look at my notes and say, 
hey, there's six more things I want to show you in the next few passages. I'm not going to do that. I encourage you to go look for them. Just know that the joy that Paul receives as a result of this report comforts him in his own affliction. The faithfulness of God's people comforts a shepherd suffering who put himself in a position of suffering to encourage his people. Did you catch that? Paul sent a man to find out about the faith of suffering Christians and in doing so put him in a position of affliction and suffering. And when he received report back, he was so encouraged in his own suffering. May we be the same kind of body that mutually encourages one another in affliction. Whether it's from sheep to sheep, sheep who's a pastor to another sheep, whatever it's going to look like, what would it look like for us to be mutually dependent on one another in the body of Christ? Meaning, when my car breaks down, I'm going to be hitting you up for help. Meaning, when my marriage is in crisis, I'm going to hit you up for help. When I lost my job, I'm going to hit you up for help. When my family is falling apart and my extended family is persecuting me for my own faith in Christ, I'm hitting you up for help. What a special church that would be. Amen? I was moved to tears often preparing for this. As many of you know, we're, we're moving to Virginia in a few weeks. And um, we're excited and grieving. And I've never had such a mixture of intense emotion in my life. To quote Paul, I in many ways feel the weight of what he says in verse 9 when he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. I cannot repay the Lord for the joy I've experienced as a result of being a member of this body. And praise him, I don't have to. I don't have to repay God for that. That is just an expression of his grace and his mercy to me when I didn't deserve it. For those of you who've been around here long enough, I I got here eight years ago as a new believer, a child, and a recovering drug addict. And in three weeks, I'm leaving as a husband and a father with a call to ministry, a call to pastor. And God's used you to help me get there. Thank you. Thank you. This is the last time I'll I'll, I'll get to preach here before we leave for the residency. And I can honestly say that there is no group of people who are more dear to me than the ones in this church. And I'm serious about that. There's no group of people in my life that I've ever experienced as much love and care and compassion for. Why? Because we share Christ. We share Christ. And so thank you for pulling a wild, crazy boy in and helping him see what it looks like to follow Jesus. I've depended on you. I've I've cried with you. I've prayed with you. People in this church have given me places to live, given me vehicles, given me money. People are still giving me money because they they just affirm God's work in us, and, and our family just celebrates that. We celebrate what God is doing in this church. We, we, we long, like, like Paul, to hear what God does here when we leave. With God's tr- strength, I, I've tried to not shrink back from, from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public like I am now, from house to house, testifying to the, the good news of God's grace to you. And now we're going to Virginia. We have no clue what's happening. We have no clue what we're doing. We're just trying to walk by faith. And yet our only hope, I can say this for both myself and for Sarah, who's been here much, much longer than me and could probably come up here and tell you all of the ways that this church has been an encouragement to her personally since she was like this big. I have pictures of like Eric Johnson, like having her on his shoulders when like 15 years ago, 
is amazing to me. For both of us, I think we can say that our only hope is that when we leave, that both Crosspoint and our family would embody what Paul says to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way to Jerusalem when he says, but I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself if only I and you would finish the course and the ministry that we've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Thank you for giving me a view of what true family in the gospel looks like. May we all be found faithful by God when Christ returns. Let's pray. God, it is a sweet, sweet joy to be with your people. We've heard your word preached. We're about to hear and and sing your word. God, help us to be people who, who depend on the local church, who love the local church, who love our leaders and, and, and walk with them and, and serve with them and minister with them and make disciples with them and cry with them. Pray with them. Let us do that with one another. God, that this would be a, a, a special church, not in that it's unique from anybody else, but that it strictly walks by the wisdom of your word, that, that the beauty of the gospel seen in the church in scripture would bear weight and significance in the beauty of the gospel seen in the life of the congregation here. I love these people. We love one another. God, help us to continue to walk in that love as members of your body, mutually dependent on one another. And we thank you, Lord, that you delight in forgiving and helping us, that you clean us, wash us, and cleanse us, and give us the means we need to be unified in a world that is chaotic and crazy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your shepherds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.